I'd like you to turn to Daniel chapter 6. We have a long scripture reading this morning. And we could read longer, but you're familiar with the story, so I'm just going to read for us the first 16 verses, Daniel chapter 6. It pleased Darius to appoint 120 satraps to rule throughout the kingdom with three administrators over them, one of whom was Daniel. The satraps were made accountable to them so that the king might not suffer loss. Now Daniel so distinguished himself among the administrators and the satraps by his exceptional qualities that the king planned to set him over the whole kingdom. At this, the administrators and the satraps tried to find grounds for charges against Daniel and his conduct of government affairs, but they were unable to do so. They could find no corruption in him because he was trustworthy and neither corrupt nor negligent. Finally, these men said, We'll never find any basis for charges against this man, Daniel, unless it has something to do with the law of his God. So the administrators and the satraps went as a group to the king and said, O King Darius, live forever. The royal administrators, prefects, satraps, advisors, and governors have all agreed that the king should issue an edict and enforce the decree that anyone who prays to any god or man during the next 30 days, except to you, O king, shall be thrown into the lion's den. Now, O king, issue the decree and put it in writing so that it cannot be altered in accordance with the laws of the Medes and the Persians, which cannot be repealed. So King Darius put the decree in writing. Now, when Daniel learned that the decree had been published, he went home to his upstairs room where the window opened toward Jerusalem. Three times a day, he got down on his knees and prayed giving thanks to his God, just as he'd done before. Then these men went as a group and found Daniel praying and asking God for help. So they went to the king and spoke to him about his royal decree. Did you not publish a decree that during the next 30 days, anyone who prays to any god or man except you, O king, would be thrown into the lion's den? The king answered, the decree stands in accordance with the laws of the Medes and the Persians, which cannot be repealed. Then they said to the king, Daniel, who is one of the exiles from Judah, pays no attention to you, O king, or to the decree you put in writing. He still prays three times a day. When the king heard this, he was greatly distressed. He was determined to rescue Daniel and made every effort until sundown to save him. Then the men went as a group to the king and said to him, Remember, O king, that according to the law of the Medes and Persians, No decree or edict that the king issues can be changed. So the king gave the order, and they brought Daniel and threw him into the lion's den. We're thinking about bold faith this month, and bold faith leads to bold prayers. But bold praying does not necessarily mean believing in great things. It means believing in a great God. In Daniel 6, we find the prophet boldly praying. Now, it's not that he's asking God to do bold things, but that he's bold in asking God to do anything. Sometimes boldness is not about asking the impossible, but about seeking the inscrutable, 
Sometimes boldness lies in trusting everything to God when everyone else trusts their own abilities and cleverness. Let me give you a little background about the prophet Daniel. His country lost a hopeless war in stages and was finally occupied by Babylonian troops. In 597 BC, the first of a series of deportations of Jewish nobles and prominent citizens was ordered. Daniel, who was a teenager at the time, was in that first wave of exiles. The Babylonian scheme was to retrain young Jewish nobles, in fact, young nobles from various religions and countries, and instill in them an allegiance to the empire while they were still capable of being molded. Young men who showed particular potential were selected and trained for positions within the government. Daniel and three of his friends were in that group. Daniel's ability and his integrity quickly caught the attention of his supervisors. He began moving up the administrative ladder. When the Babylonian government was overthrown by the Medo-Persian Empire, Daniel retained his administrative position. In fact, he was promoted. When the Median-led government collapsed and a Persian contingency ascended to power, Daniel kept his job. Daniel lived most of his life, and he had a long life, in exile from his home. He served in government for at least six decades. Our story, which is one of the most familiar in the Bible, finds Daniel the victim of a conspiracy. And he's arrested and thrown into the lion's den. What most people don't know is that by this time, Daniel was an old man, well into his retirement years. This is not a 30-year-old being treated so viciously. He's more like 80 years old at this time. When Darius the Mede overthrew the Babylonian government, he initiated a program of structural changes throughout the empire. He created 120 satrapies, which were something like small provinces, under the oversight of 120 satraps, something like regional regional provincial governors. The satraps answered to an administrator. Each uh, to each 40 had one administrator over them, so three administrators. And the administrators answered to the king himself. At some point, Daniel was appointed as one of these three regional administrators. Now, it's important to our, our story to understand what the administrators' primary responsibility was. They were tasked with rooting out corruption so that the revenues collected from the provinces actually made it into the imperial coffers. That's the meaning of verse 2. The satraps were made accountable to them, the administrators, so that the king might not suffer loss. In recent years, we hear again and again about the corruption in Middle Eastern states. Iraq's government, for example, has been a study in corruption. It's been a problem for the last, ever since the war started. Afghanistan has been so bad that the State Department considered abandoning its commitment to the Karzai government. The Christian Science Monitor recently reported that government corruption is a bigger threat to our interests in Afghanistan than the Taliban. And the same kind of thing is true in Pakistan, Iran, Egypt, the Palestinian Authority. This kind of corruption, though, isn't anything new. It was going on two millennia ago in Daniel's day, and if the Lord doesn't return first, it'll be going on two millennia from now. But Daniel was incorruptible. Daniel was probably a terror to the warlords and officials, including the satraps 
who were looking to get rich at the expense of the empire. That made Daniel a favorite of the king. Verse 3, the king planned to set him over the whole kingdom. But it made him an enemy of the satraps and even of his peers on the administrative council. The love of money is the root of all kinds of evil, including deceit and murder, both of which were planned for Daniel. When the administrators, these are Daniel's peers, and the satraps, his subordinates, couldn't find any grounds for charges against him, in his work, they concluded that their only chance of getting rid of this guy was to use his religious beliefs to trap him. So verse 5, finally these men said, we'll never find any basis for charges against this man Daniel unless it has something to do with the law of his God. As an aside, what a great thing to say about him or to say about one of us. These guys investigated Daniel's life history. They interviewed his co-workers. They probably talked to his neighbors. They were as intent on digging up dirt on their opponent as any modern political campaign, but there was nothing. The only way they could get to this guy, they concluded, was through his faith. So they decided to use God to discredit him. Using God is never recommended, no matter what your goal But if your goal is to harm one of his people, it's downright stupid and dangerous, as these guys were going to find out. But at first, it seemed as if everything was going according to plan. They went to the king, verse 6, in order to set things in motion. So the administrators and the satraps went as a group to the king and said, Oh, King Darius, live forever. Now look at what they say. The royal administrators, prefects, satraps, advisors, and governors have all agreed, all There was one administrator, at least, who hadn't agreed that the king should issue an edict and enforce the decree that anyone who prays to any god or man during the next 30 years, except to you, O next 30 days, except to you, O king, shall be thrown into the lion's den. Now, we read that, and we suppose the administrators and satraps were appealing to Darius's pride. That's probably not the case. It's more likely that they framed this thing politically rather than personally. This was an appeal to security. Religion had been divisive historically. This decree was aiming at changing that. Throughout Medo-Persia, Darius would become the one mediator between man and God. The law amounted to a loyalty oath for all the religious groups in the empire. That made sense to Darius. The threats against his government were largely internal, coming from a variety of ethnic and tribal groups that had been conquered but never assimilated. His leading officials were all in agreement. This plan would help assimilate them. This was a wise thing to do. So verse 8, Now, O king, issue the decree and put it in writing so that it cannot be altered in accordance with the laws of the Medes and the Persians, which cannot be repealed. I mentioned a few moments ago that Uh, the Persians eventually gained ascendancy over their Median counterparts. So if you read later writings like the book of Esther, you'll find the word order of that stock phrase, the law of the Medes and the Persians, reversed. Which I just mentioned that because many scholars date this book much later than um, most evangelicals believe. But just this little note using the phrase Medes and Persians instead of Persians and Medes suggests that it wasn't later but earlier that this book was written. Darius's advisors framed this plan in such a way that he would see it as 
a wise and practical move. So, verse 9, King Darius put the decree in writing. As soon as his royal seal was set on it, the decree became law, and the law became irrevocable. The supreme nature of their laws was a matter of great pride to the Medes and Persians. Couldn't be revoked. Now, I see a warning for us here. The king, following trusted counsel in what seemed his best interest, walked right out of God's will and right into a hornet's nest. Our discretion is not enough to guide us safely. We need to surround ourselves with wise and godly people and seek the leading of the Holy Spirit. We need God's help to make right decisions. And God's help is just what Daniel had so long sought and enjoyed. And he wasn't going to stop now in spite of this law. So verse 10, now when Daniel learned that the decree had been published, he went home to his upstairs room where the window opened towards Jerusalem. It had been his habit perhaps for decades to kneel beside that window to pray. Now such prayers were punishable by death. You imagine what went through Daniel's mind? Perhaps he should show a little more restraint. Just be a little more cautious. He could pray privately. No one else needed to know what he was doing. And it's just a month. One month. After that, he could go back to his regular schedule. God would understand. And wouldn't God want him to be prudent? I mean, if he continued his old routine, wouldn't he be throwing his life away? Isn't that like tempting God? Surely God wanted him to take care of the life that he'd given him and not squander it for one month. I think this was the moment of truth. Not later when he was in the lion's den. Right now. Daniel could find a hundred ways to justify a course of action that was self-protective and safe. But that's not what his heart, so long schooled in listening to God, was telling him to do. He could find a hundred reasons for not praying like he normally did and only one reason for doing it. That's what God wanted. What sustains you in a moment like that is not confidence that everything will work out, but confidence in the one who works everything out. We think that bold prayer is trusting God for great things, but really it's trusting God to be great, to be himself in this situation. That boldness doesn't require us to believe in a particular outcome, but to believe our powerful, loving, gracious God. Daniel had that confidence, whether things worked out the way he wanted them to or not. So, verse 10 still, three times a day he got down on his knees and prayed, giving thanks to his God just as he'd done before. Maybe you've had this kind of crisis in your life at some point where it seemed like if God didn't intervene, everything would go wrong, and you prayed to him, and you trusted him. You really did. You made that connection of trust between you and him. I've noticed that when people do that, when they choose to trust God like this in a crisis, they often assume that their hardships will automatically cease. The cancer will go away. The spouse will come back. The child will make the right decisions. It's almost as if they expect a reward for trusting. They expect that God will now make things work out the way they want. That somehow they've deserved that by trusting him. And if that doesn't happen, they feel that God's betrayed them. We see with Daniel, it doesn't work that way. His enemies got what they wanted. Daniel got the lion's den. 
even though he prayed and they didn't. That doesn't seem fair, does it? But both in the story of Daniel and in the story of our own lives, we need to remember that there is more to come. As Rob sang earlier, we're not home yet. Even death is only the end of a chapter, not of the story. Now, before we go on, let's take a moment to see what verses 10 and 11 tell us about Daniel's prayer life. See how this matches up with your prayer life. First, his prayer life was embedded into his routine. He prayed three times a day, as Solomon had recommended before, whether he felt like it or not. Corey Ten Boom once said, don't pray when you feel like it. Have an appointment with God and keep it. A man is powerful, she said, on his knees. The more we pray, Dallas Willard has written, the more we think to pray. And as a result, the more prayer answers we see and our confidence in God's power spills over into the rest of our lives. Daniel had a regular appointment with God and he kept it. Notice the posture he assumed. He got on his knees. That suggests reverence. On our knees, we take the attitude of a suppliant and recognize God as our Lord and benefactor. Now, we don't need to get on our knees to have that attitude. But if we're not careful, our requests can turn into demands. We can actually start thinking without realizing it that God is our servant rather than the other way around. Think about this for a moment. If someone recorded your last prayer and played it back, would it be clear that God was the boss and not you? I know my prayers have sometimes sounded like I was giving God orders. I've caught myself in the middle of my prayer telling God, I need this, I need this, do this, do this. That shouldn't be. Notice that Daniel's prayer included thanksgiving. Think about that for a moment. Daniel, according to verse 10, already knew that this obscene law had gone into effect. He knew that his life was threatened. He knew, I have no doubt, that his enemies were conspiring against him, and yet he came to God with thanksgiving. Thanksgiving is the hallmark of a beautiful soul. The more mature we grow in faith, the more we see causes for thanksgiving, and more importantly, the more we feel thankful. No wonder St. Paul says that we should always give thanks to God the Father for everything in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. The thankful Christian knows that God, not circumstance, rules his life. Daniel's prayer included asking God for help. Do you ask God to help you? I've known people who were too spiritual to do that. They considered it selfish. Oh, I never pray for myself. I just pray for other people. Well, those two people are too spiritual for God. If prayer becomes so advanced that it no longer includes asking, it ceased to be biblical prayer. The vast amount of instruction we have in the scripture concerning prayer is about asking. God wants us to ask. Now, we know what happened in the rest of the story. Daniel prayed. The conspirators caught him. 
the new law was enforced and he was thrown into the lion's den. His 80-year-old bones must have hurt when he landed on that hard stone floor. But the lions did him no harm. God sent his angel, verse 22, and he shut the mouths of the lions. Think of how news about Daniel must have spread around the kingdom. Think of how God was honored because of this situation. Look at the decree King Darius issued in response. This is verse 26. I issue a decree that in every part of my kingdom, people must fear and reverence the God of Daniel. For he's a living God and he endures forever. His kingdom will not be destroyed. His dominion will never end. He rescues and he saves. He performs signs and wonders in heavens and on the earth. And why did he know all that? Because he's rescued Daniel from the power of the lions. Now, the most important moment in this story is not when Daniel fell into the lion's den, but when he fell on his knees in that upstairs room. The lion's den, the destruction of his enemies, and the glory of God all resulted from that prayer. We see something similar when Jesus prays in Gethsemane on the eve of the crucifixion. He says, my soul is overwhelmed to the point of death. But once he met his father in that prayer, he could face anything. You see it in the text, even the cross. And so it was with Daniel. We read that King Darius was so worked up that he couldn't sleep or eat while Daniel was in the lion's den. It wouldn't surprise me if Daniel curled up on that stone floor and slept like a baby. His battle was already won. It was won when he got down on his knees. The ancient Chinese strategist Sun Tzu was right. Every battle is won or lost before it's fought. Now, how could Daniel pray like that? Can we pray like that? I think the answer is found in a phrase in verse 10, where we read that he prayed just as he had done before. He was able to pray in the moment of crisis because he had prayed 10,000 times when he wasn't in a crisis. If we wait for the crisis to come before we pray, we will not pray well. Prayer isn't hard. Peter Crift is right. You don't have to master some mystical method to pray. You don't have to master a method at all. Can you talk to a friend? Then you can talk to God, for he's your friend. And that's what prayer is. The single most important piece of advice about prayer is one word. Begin. God makes it easy. Just do it. Don't wait for a crisis to pray. That'll be too late. Some years ago, a group of us from Lockwood went to West Africa. And before we went, we were schooled in um, Arabic and Wolof greetings because greetings are very important in that culture. And we practiced the greetings numerous times, but I enjoy learning languages like Doug. And so I practiced them even more. I went around the house and probably said the greetings to my wife over and over again. You know, I just tried to get them down. Well, on that trip, Larry Knapp and I left everyone else and we took... uh, a taxi across Senegal, a taxi that broke down twice while we were on our trip. And the second time, we limped into this little village, 
And as soon as we stopped, all the nationals piled out of the car and they went looking for something to eat, leaving Larry and I alone. Someone from the town spotted us and started pointing and calling out really loudly some word, which I think meant white guys or gringos. And pretty soon, this crowd of men had gathered and they were moving towards us as a group. I said, Larry, you better come here because I'm facing these guys as they're coming. You better come over here. And he said, no. <laughs> Larry's an experienced traveler. He said, I'm staying back here to guard the luggage. <laughs> I don't care about the luggage. I care about this group of guys that are coming towards me. So I didn't know what else to do. So I launched into my much-practiced greetings. I wished them peace and received it in return. I inquired about their health and the health of their families and on and on until I ran out of practice phrases. And then they all laughed at me and they turned around and left. <laughs> and the show was over. I butchered their language. I know I did. But they didn't mind. In fact, I think they were happy that I tried. And somehow they were able to understand what I was trying to say. At that moment, I was glad I had practiced my greetings over and over again. If I had waited until that moment and got out my little phrase book, I never would have managed. So it is with prayer. Daniel could pray in the shadow of the lion's den because he had so often prayed in the shadow of the Almighty. And don't worry that your prayers sound rough and artificial. God is happy that you're trying and he will be able to understand you and you will find conversing with him becomes more and more enjoyable until it becomes embedded in your routine. Now one last thing. This Bold Faith Initiative could turn into a guilt trip if we aren't careful. It could become an opportunity to lay on you the burden of being bold, of witnessing, of claiming great things in prayer, of believing God for them. Laying burdens on people is not a preacher's job. I'd rather take the burden off you or help you carry it. And that's why I'm encouraging you to pray. Don't think of prayer as one more thing you have to do in order to be a good Christian. It's nothing of the sort. Prayer is not another burden to bear, but a means of sharing the burdens you already carry. It's a joy and a privilege. I'm not exhorting you to do it. I'm inviting you to try it. And I hope you'll accept the invitation. Now let's pray. God, I don't ask that you will give us miraculous things to request. If you do, then we'll accept them. But I pray that our boldness might come in trusting you with everything we are and everything we have. In the midst of the crisis or in the time of peace and prosperity so that you might be glorified. And I ask for this in the name of your Son, Jesus, whom we love. Amen.